You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now the 1-0 pitch to Kelly, swinging a line drive into the gap in left center field. Here comes Crawford. He's waving in time. Tie run at third. He'll score. Here comes Teoscar. He's being waved in. He'll score. Kelnick to third slides. He's safe at third. No relay to third. Jelly Kelnick with a bases clearing triple into the gap in left center field. Holy smokes. The Mariners lead the White Sox. Five to one. Jared Kelnick coming through in the clutch. It's Mariners pod back again. A fun one for you today. That was from yesterday, the highlight. Mariners beat the White Sox 5-1 final. They take the series. They were 4-2 on the homestand. Series win against Miami. Series win against the White Sox. Very interesting, entertaining, wild game yesterday. Despite all the strikeouts from Lance Lynn, the Mariners, they came through when they needed to. Disappointing loss the day before. An extra innings, 4-3 in 11. But overall, they win the series against Chicago. Now turn their attention to the Yankees. Coming up on the podcast today, we had a chance to catch up with Brandon Gustafson from SeattleSports.com. Just a wide-ranging Mariners conversation, also a talk about the division, especially in the context of there's a lot of interesting things happening within the division with the Astros and their struggles and the injuries and the Rangers. They've continued to play great. The Angels, they're surging as well. So division talk and a lot more coming your way as well. Also... Over the weekend, the Mariners celebrated the Negro Leagues on Saturday. They wore the Steelhead jerseys. And it was a piece that we talked about during the pregame show. Uh, In case you missed it, I had some people asking about it, so I'm going to post it here. Uh, If you go to Baseball Reference and you pull up Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, any of the Negro League greats, their stats are there. Negro League stats are Major League stats. The story of how that came about is really interesting. So we kind of dive in and tell the story of the real work that went in behind the statistics you see on Baseball Reference, for example, when you see Josh Gibson and all the other numbers that go along. It took a long time. It's taken a lot of effort. And finally, it's been officially declared. I think we always know it, but officially declared that The Negro Leagues are the major leagues, and now you can find all the numbers to go along with it. So that piece will come up after our conversation with Gustafson. In the meantime, Mariners will take on the Yankees starting Tuesday. Delicious pitching matchup to start. Garrett Cole, George Kirby in Game 1. Game 2, we don't know who's going on the Yankees' side. Luis Castillo, who we've seen in a Mariners uniform at Yankee Stadium. It's been pretty great, so we'll see. What happens? Uh, game two of the series on Wednesday, and then game three, Brian Wu will get a shot at the Yankees. All games at 4 o'clock in New York. Yankees probably without Aaron Judge. The toe injury is really wild. He could show up at any moment, or he could be out four more weeks. Uh, Aaron Boone is really unsure when they'll see Aaron Judge. What we do know is the Yankees' numbers dramatically different 
with Judge and without Judge in the lineup. Uh, they've been struggling without him. So we'll see if the Mariners can get this series in New York before heading to Baltimore. We know that one's going to be tough, but we can talk about that one coming up. First things first, three against the Yankees. Before that, though, here's our chat with Brandon Gustafson from Seattle Sports and seattlesports.com. It's great to see you here. Good Thanks for coming too. in. Yeah, of course. Always, always willing to make time for my guy Gary Hill. How's everything? Yeah, doing great. Uh, as you know, a lot. Of, I know. I know some of these listeners follow me on the old Twitter, so they probably seen it. Got engaged a few months Congrats. ago. Thank you. Yeah, yes. very excited. Booked our wedding venue on Friday. Good so venue. things are things are looking up for the the Gustafson household. The venue is a big step. It's a huge step. <laughs> Outside of buying the ring and making sure that she's okay with you know wanting to spend the rest of her life with me, that's a, that's the next big one. Is it a baseball field? Is that no, the... no. You know, I, I, I was thinking of doing it down at the pen, but I thought Ryan Divish might beat me up, so I, I thought better of that. Yeah, that's a, that's probably for the best. That's very funny, though. I think that that actually would have been great. Like, during a game, too, would have been even well, better. What, what's funny is I, I came, like, a week after I got engaged, and, you know, I'm, I'm down at the clubhouse. I'm talking to Shannon Dreyer, and, and, and Divish comes up to me. He's like, hey, congrats. Thanks for not asking her at a Mariners game on the big screen. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Uh, what if you would have done that during a game? Would you still have gotten a yes? Do you think, or oh. the reaction been so poor that? Oh man, you know, I was, I was actually, we, we talked about it, not about the idea of doing it at a game, but like doing it just in front of a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and she's like, it would have been weird, but I still would have said yes. Oh, good. But, okay. but she, she was definitely a bigger fan of doing it in a more private setting. <laughs> I understand that 100. Yeah. percent That's great. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to start. Let's. Put on your optimist hat for a moment. Okay. If a month from now we are talking about the Mariners a game out of the wild card or in the or with a wild card spot or something along those lines, so right there in the, on the cusp of of a playoff spot, what in your mind will have gone well for this team to get them into that spot? You know, I would look at, at one guy in particular because I think there's been a there's been some 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 bright spots from you know Julio. Uh, Jose Caballero has obviously been a revelation for this team. Teoscar has been having a phenomenal month of June. But if Gino Suarez does what Gino Suarez did for this team last year, you you saw week long stretches, multiple week long stretches, where that guy was just was just carrying the load for this team. And if, if we've seen some signs from him of late, I mean, he had a game in Anaheim where he hit I think three or four balls, hundred plus miles an hour, and had nothing to show for it. And then he's a foot away from tying the game with the grand slam a few days ago against uh. Miami, right? So I think when you look at just this team and what they did last year and what they could be this year from an, from an optimistic standpoint, I think Gino Suarez would be the first guy I look at because I think you feel pretty good about your pitching even with two rookie starters just in large part because your bullpen is still very, very, very good. Yeah, I like that selection too, thinking about him specifically because I feel like he's symbolic. Not that it's all him, but at this stage of the season, uh, I'm still surprised that we're – we're talking about a Mariners team that was like 25th in baseball and slugging, yeah. where coming into the season, I thought that would be an absolute strength, especially with the addition of Teoscar. If you would have told me they're top five at this point of the season, I would have believed it, given the thump they had in the middle of the order. So not that it's, again, not that it's all him, but 
I think he's symbolic of what the team is hoping for, what the team has seen so far from Slug and what they're hoping for moving forward. 100%. And he meant so much to this team last year. It's it's clear being down there and talking to guys that he still means a lot to them this year too. Uh, just just such a leader for this team. And again, I mean, when, when you look at what they were able to accomplish last year with, with the home runs and with the RBIs and whatnot, and we saw so many instances where he was able to have some sort of clutch hit late in a game that it just, yeah, Gino Suarez kind of leading the charge here and getting hot, having a nice two, three-week stretch, I think would do a lot for this team, especially because with guys like Ty France and Teoscar kind of doing what they've been doing over the last three, four weeks or so, then, yeah, that just kind of changes the dynamic. And again, like you said, this is a team that's built to do damage in the middle of their lineup, be it, be it with the long ball, be it with just that that slug. And it's been really surprising to see what his numbers are in, in that way so far this year. You mentioned Caballero a moment ago, who has been such a fun surprise for this team in the first half. What are your thoughts on what the Mariners have gotten from Caballero at second base? Yeah, unexpected and just uh, very much needed. I mean, especially considering Dylan Moore was out for so long. We, they just got him back, and, and Colton Wong obviously has not been able to, to work out on the field so far. But a guy that's just able to add just kind of an edge in an interesting way. And just, uh, you know, the, the word that comes to mind is pest. I know a lot, a lot of Mariner fans, I'm sure, are Kraken fans. It's, it's like the Yanni Gord aspect where it's just mm -hmm. like seems like anytime there's kind of something going off, feels like he's right in the middle of it just staring down at the plate till that eight second mark hits and like okay I'm, I'm looking up now and he's standing right on the plate he's a smaller guy so I mean and having him hit nine with JP1 just having those guys back to back who you know Jerry DePoto was on our station on Thursday and he said like those two guys don't like to play the games of the other pitchers they're you know a, a pitcher could set up a breaking ball or a change up down and out of the zone they're not going to swing at it because they're just like okay that's a ball uh -huh. I'm, not, I'm not playing your game and I'm sure especially because of the way Jose's able to manipulate the pitch clock I'm sure that's really really frustrating and we obviously saw tempers flare a little bit against the Astros a month ago uh, when he when he and Martin Maldonado got into it but yeah he's he's been a lot of fun and you know for all for all the struggles that this offense has had this year and we're sitting we're sitting here right hovering around 500 mark at this point of June which not a lot of us expected I mean think of where they would be without a guy like Jose Caballero yeah. stepping up and just doing what he's been able to do and contributing to to wins you know fairly regularly which nobody expected yeah it's a good point it's funny too with your description of him he's so easy for your own fan base to love him and so easy for an opposing <laughs> fan base to really not at all oh, which is yeah. great it's it, it's it's really fun because you know it, it feels like a lot of teams have that one guy that you just look at and you despise and you know if you look at the astros there's a lot of those guys <laughs> <Yeah>. unfortunately <laughs> there's plenty right there, yeah. there, there's a lot of guys for whatever reason but yeah it, it, you know i i know dave wyman for our station he always talks about that on the football side of things it's like man I hate that guy, but if he was on the Seahawks, yeah. he'd be my favorite player. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that that's that's Jose Caballero's becoming a becoming a little bit of a cult hero, so to speak. But his play on the field's definitely been backing it up. I mean, you're looking at a guy that's getting on base 40% of the time. Uh, I was looking at fan graphs the other day, and for second baseman with at least 120 plate appearances, he's third in WRC+. plus. So it's not just like these little things of him being annoying in the batter's box and swiping a base here and there, but he's he's just been a really, really good big league player for, for over a month now. And again, no, who would have expected that come opening day? Nice. Uh, you mentioned the Houston Astros. Let's play a game here. This will be a fun game. Okay. And we'll, we'll take it a team at a time. I want to know how emphatic you believe the current team I will mention, how much you believe this is what they are. So let's start with the Texas Rangers. How much do you believe this is what the Texas Rangers are and this is what they'll be 
moving forward the rest of the year? You know, I, I see Texas not as the 100-win juggernaut that they're on pace to be, but I see them being a team kind of like the Blue Jays have been mm. the last years where it's just they hit the ball all over the ballpark. Uh, I'm, I am surprised that their pitching has been as good as it's been, especially when you consider Jacob deGrom signs the massive deal and he's done for the year already. I, I think they'll, you know, not come to earth is not probably the best way to put it, but they're, I don't think they're a 100-win team, but if they're a team that ends up 95, 96 wins, just based on what we've seen so far, and you have a guy like Bruce Bochy pushing all the right buttons, mm -hmm. not surprising at all. How much do you believe in this current Houston Astros is this the real Houston Astros? They're beat up, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> They're really beat up. They're another team where when, when you look at the AL West, it's like, man, are these two teams really going to be fighting for 100 wins and going head-to-head -head for the West? I think they're another team that's kind of like kind of like the Rangers there, where I, I see them as kind of like a mid-90s win team, still making the playoffs, again, still being really annoying for a lot of teams because it's like, man, when are they going to really kind of falter? But dealing with the injuries, they still pitch really well. They yeah. have just enough on the hitting side. The X factor is just whether Jordan's able to come back from the oblique in the kind of timeline that they're, they're, they're throwing out there. I know. I was thinking about that, too, just how much, you know, if he's gone for a month, what does that look like for the Astros? And what if it goes longer? We know how obliques can be. Yeah. Those aren't the easiest Super things. tricky thing. And he's such a big guy, and he swings so hard yeah. and generates so much force with that. I mean, yeah. When, when I saw the four- to six-week thing, I was like, really? For an oblique for that guy? Yeah. Like, I, I guess we'll see, though. Because I think about the great hitters in the game we have. And if, if you had me list the top five, I'm not sure where Alvarez would be on the list, but he's in my top five. I think he's incredible. And not having him for any length of time, I think that's a huge loss for the Astros. Yeah. I'm not sure what that's going to translate into wins and losses, but it's a big loss. Yeah, I mean, and, and with, with just with Jordan, I think a lot of people get hung up on the on the power, obviously, right? And the pull power is unbelievable, but he uses all fields and he hits for average and for such a big guy that has maybe the most raw pop of anybody in baseball or, mm. or you know, way, way up there. It is surprising just how good and fluid and, and smart of a hitter that that guy is. Yeah. Okay, the Angels. Oh, man. How much are you a believer in this group of Angels being the Angels moving forward? Nah, I, I, I still see the Angels as a 500 team. I, I thought that this offseason was actually one of the smarter ones they've done. Like, just, yeah, just getting some solid additions. Drury, Tyler Anderson, guys that, guys that Mariner fans, I'm sure, know pretty well over the last few years. But again, I just I don't think that I don't see them as a playoff contender. I think they'll hang around here for a little bit. You know, I don't I don't see them trading Otani at the deadline or anything like that. But th to me, that's like an 80 to 83 win team. Has an MVP ever been traded at the deadline before? Because it feels like <laughs> that's that's exactly what would happen. Because for me, he's the leader in the clubhouse, and it's not particularly close right now. Yeah, it, it's it's ridiculous what that guy's able to do. It, it's it's like playing a video game and just giving the guy full stats, like in everything. <laughs> yes. It, it, I mean, that that's what he does. A guy throwing 100 miles an hour, and then he's going out there, and he's hitting 450-foot moonshots while hitting, like, 280. It's just not fair. It, 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 we've never seen anything like it. Might not never <laughs> might not ever see anything like it again either. It's, it's, it's astounding, and, uh, you know, from a Mariner's perspective, it's like, yeah, it, it's really fun to see when he's not playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get him out of the AL West. Yeah, I, I have that all the time. I, it's been the same thing with Trout all these years. Like, I'm very thankful as a baseball fan, fan of the game and a fan of great players. Like, I love watching Mike Trout, Mike Trout play. I love watching Otani play. At the same time, you know, when Otani's taking it to the upper deck to give the Angels the lead, it's like, well, this isn't as fun as yeah. 
I thought going See, in. Seeing a guy hit a home run and have three hits and he's a triple short of the cycle on a day that he also pitched and gave you a quality <laughs> yeah. start. It's, it's like, okay, man, like, what are we doing here? Yeah, it's a bit much. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Yeah, that's because the division is so interesting, which is why I asked you about each team individually, because I feel like, and you can include the Mariners on this, you can map out a lot of different scenarios for all four teams in the division it would all be believable 100% and but what makes and what makes it especially interesting is then you look at the AL East and every team's over yeah. 500 and then you look at the Central and every team's 500 or below basically yeah. it's it's just fascinating the dynamic of the American League this year part of that is the is the new look schedule and playing all these National League teams as well and you're not playing your division as much as you have in these previous years I mean what it went from 19 games to, to 12 11 this year you're not getting this lowly version of the ace that that you saw and you probably would if, especially if you're a mariners team looking to really get rolling you'd love to be playing the A's 19 times this year you mean the hottest team yeah, in baseball, hottest team in baseball. <laughs> it's unbelievable right and that's like hey hold on look at the royals come on now no it, it's uh it, it's unbelievable because like, like you said you could map out so many scenarios where you have two three teams even just one team making the playoffs out of this division and then you look across the country and it's like oh my gosh the orioles even even after kind of slowing down a little bit they, they're still they're still one of the better teams yeah. in baseball the rays look like an absolute juggernaut and mm -hmm. just offensively are just doing things that we've never really seen down in tampa it's a, it's a fascinating year for the american league you know it really is and i guess when i look at the landscape and where the mariners fit in moving forward like the I'm not a big standings guy in June, but if you look at the games out, like the games out, that's not the problem for the Mariners. No. It's not it's not the five games or whatever it happens to be right now. It, it's the four teams they have to jump to get there. And so when I think about what the Mariners have to do, uh, they have to play well for an extended stretch. That's kind of a given. But when they go on a trip like they're going to go on to starting on Tuesday where they're playing the Yankees in Baltimore, two teams that are ahead of them in this thing, and they got six cracks at each of them, it feels like that's a big opportunity for them. I mean, they have to take advantage of opportunities. Yeah, right it's a team that has had one, what, three, four-game win streaks, and that's it, right? Yeah. It's just it's start-stop, start-stop. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not even really like peaks and valleys, really, for this team so far. It's just been just hovering right around 500 the entire time, never getting too high, not getting too low. Uh, and that's kind of been what's frustrating is it's like you're stuck in neutral, you're stuck in first gear, and you just have not been able to kind of get that takeoff. But you're right, and going back to the schedule standpoint, having those that amount of teams ahead of you, you're also not going to get that many cracks head-to-head -head against mm -hmm. those guys to leap them. So, yeah, I mean, as, as much as, like you said, June standings can kind of be like, huh, I don't, I don't know about that. You look at what the Angels were doing last year and where they ended up finishing, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, um, but but at the same time, it's like, yeah, you're not going to get too many chances to go and play the Yankees or the Orioles or these teams that are directly ahead of you in the standings and have that chance to make up the ground one on one against those guys. It's going to be fun to watch. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming. Yeah, in. This of course, a fun Gary, chat. anytime. We've all heard the stories, whether it's Buck O'Neill telling the tales of Oscar Charleston. Oscar Charleston could actually could do it all. The closest thing to Oscar Charleston, this is what we old timers say who saw them all, the closest thing to Oscar Charleston was Willie Mays. The closest thing to Oscar was Willie Mays. Oscar had a little more power than Willie. Oscar was a little quicker than Willie. Oscar's arm was a little stronger than Willie's. And Oscar's range was as good as Willie's. Or Joe Black 
telling the stories of Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige. It had to be Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Buck Leonard. Satchel Paige could pitch. When he got in the big leagues in 40, and in Hayes 40, he had control. Uh, and then and, 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 and Josh, the stories you hear about Satchel and Josh, 90% are true. Most of the other guys, 90% are lies. Josh could hit. I mean, when he was in the Negro Leagues, Campanella was never starting catching the All-Star game. It was Josh Gibson, big 6'3", 225 pounds, hit and run. But he came in our dugout one day and told the manager, he said, Andy Porter, old Josh going to hit you over that fence and that fence. And you know I feel good tonight. <laughs> I think I'm going to take you over that center field fence too. He got two out of three, hit the left field fence. Ball hit off the right field wall, next time straightway center field. But it wasn't until December of 2020, Major League Baseball did something we all already knew, finally elevated the Negro Leagues to Major League status. Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. Tremendous pride. Uh, I reflect, obviously, and naturally to my dear friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, who was the architect of building a Negro Leagues baseball museum and a legendary Negro Leaguer in his own right. And every time we hit one of these milestone moments like that, I reflect to him uh, because I know how proud he would be. But I think we carry that same level of pride at the Negro Leagues baseball museum and the Negro Leagues family by and large, very proud of what we're seeing, this level of recognition the level of engagement around the Negro Leagues and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is at an all-time high. And so we are so honored to be part of what led us to that epic decision in December when Major League Baseball announced what we've known all along is that the Negro Leagues were a major league. Larry Lester was a co-founder of the Negro Leagues Museum and one of the foremost historians on Negro Leagues Baseball. Well, it was a bittersweet sweet moment in that it was bitter that it took so long for them to recognize what I already knew about the greatness of these ball players. The sweetness is that it finally happened. I didn't expect for it to happen. It was a surprise to me and others. I never campaigned for the inclusion of Negro League stat or the elevation, as they call it, to the major league level, but I accepted and I welcome the opportunity to share uh, new information with baseball fans. So one of the most important aspects of the new designation of the Negro Leagues, stats and records of all players will be part of Major League Baseball's history. The stats came from the Seamheads Negro League database. Now, this is a database that has been under construction for, for many, many years, decades even. And uh, Baseball Reference recently acquired the database so we could show it on Baseball Reference. And that was uh, the work of a a lot of researchers. It was uh, Gary Ashwill, Scott Simkus, Mike Lynch, Kevin Johnson, Larry Lester. They all did a ton of work uh, to put this database together. And we acquired it, and now we were able to present it on our site. That's Adam Dorowski from BaseballReference.com, a site you can go to right now to look up Josh Gibson, or Satchel Page, or Monty Irvin, or any player from the Negro Leagues era. This project means so much to all of us that are working on it. 
and just to, to make sure that we did it right too, we had so many experts working with us. We had uh, Bob Kendrick, we had Larry Lester, we had Sean Gibson, the great grandson of Josh Gibson working on this with us. We had players like Adam Jones and Andrew McCutcheon reviewing it to make sure that we were presenting this data in the most respectful way possible to tell the story of the Negro Leagues because we wanna tell the stories of the context in which these games were played while also showing the stats of these all-time greats. But how did the stats get there? It's a story that spans decades. I was curious after I got out of college in the early 70s. Uh, I knew about Satchel Page because I went to school with his, with his kids. And Buck O'Neill was wife was my grade school teacher. And I grew up in the neighborhood with a bunch of Negro League veterans. So I was curious to see if the stories matched the stats. And so I spent a lot of time in the library looking at microfilm and making notes uh pencil pad and calculator because we didn't have the uh computers or internet back then and i would just hand calculate statistics game by game player by player season by season and uh, i enjoyed doing it i like working with numbers and uh it was a labor of love gary ashwell from seamheads.com who've provided these stats to baseballreference.com and his journey goes back a long ways. I mean, it goes way back to the 1980s. You know, when I, was, I was a baseball fan. I was growing up in Kansas City as a fan of the Royals, and uh, and I was a little bit of a stats nerd. And um, I used to read Bill James's baseball abstracts and, and so on. And uh, at some point, my mom gave me a copy of uh, Only the Ball Was White by Bob Peterson, which is sort of the classic first um you know history of black baseball in modern times it was published in 1969 but uh, she gave this to me when i was a teenager and i was i was uh, i just thought it was the most fascinating thing i'd ever read and i couldn't help but notice you know i, I had all these baseball encyclopedias and um well you've got all these numbers for uh the white major leaguers and you can pour over their careers and their their numbers and and so on but you couldn't do that with the black ball players and there wasn't at that time uh this is the early 80s uh there was nothing uh no statistical record anybody had published you know at all so i'd always had that in the back of my mind like i was just really curious about it and over the years uh you know some of the great historians of black baseball like larry lester and dick clark and john hallway uh, started coming out with some numbers that were published in various places, but there was still not a comprehensive encyclopedia anywhere, and you couldn't really analyze the numbers the way you could with uh, the white majors. So, you know, it's just something I'd always been interested in. I collected everything I could. Uh, it was kind of a hobby of mine. But it wasn't until uh, around the year 2000, I was in graduate school, and I noticed that the library where I, where I was doing some research, uh, not related to baseball, uh, had microfilm copies of some of the great black newspapers like the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier, and so on. And kind of on a whim, I got some microfilm reels down, uh, started checking through them and realized that there, there was just tons of material there. There's box scores all over the place. And I just kind of started photocopying this stuff. And eventually I just started compiling stuff. And eventually I was asked to join um, a statistical project that the Hall of Fame was doing about, this was about, what, 17, 18 years ago now. And this was the one that they did prior to the special Hall of Fame election they had in 2006. This was sort of the first modern attempt at a comprehensive, you know, Negro League encyclopedia. So I did, I did some contributions to that. 
and then eventually uh, a friend of mine, Kevin Johnson, um, approached me. He was working for a website called seamheads.com, and he said, why don't we just bundle up all your stuff and you know, present it on our website as a, you know, as a uh, actual uh, database. I also approached Larry Lester and Dick Clark because uh, they had continued to work on their material over the years and to enhance it and, and add to it. And so we wound up folding their material into our database. And so there you go. The amount of stats and box scores that have been unearthed through the years is staggering. Eventually uh, got into the IT field and I designed a database to input all my data. And I can run a report that shows me how many box scores are in my database. And I came up with about 14,000. And that goes all the way back to uh, post-Civil War uh, African-Americans have been playing baseball since the Civil War, so it's all documented. I didn't do it overnight. It's, I spent a lot of time in the library and a lot of time in front of my computer, and uh, sometimes I would stay at the library until 9, nine o'clock every night when they kicked me out and uh, making microfilm copies because I didn't have the Internet back then. A lot of dimes went into those microfilm machines, print copies. And the hunt continues today. Because the Negro Leagues themselves uh, only published statistics occasionally um you know black publications uh, black newspapers in particular tried to cover negro league baseball as much as they could but they tended to lack space they, they were mostly weekly newspapers and so at best they could devote two or three pages a week to all sports right so you didn't really have something like say the sporting news uh for white baseball or uh the annual uh, baseball guides that you would have that would publish all the statistics uh, you know, comprehensively for, you know, for the white majors. So basically just even though the leagues did keep track of statistics, as often was simply not published. So because there's no central source, we've got to go and track down uh, box scores for individual games. <laughs> and wow. uh, that is, you know, quite a task because there is no place, not even the Library of Congress, that has all the newspapers that you need for this. <laughs> so, uh, so it does involve, in some instances, traveling all over the country. If it's something that you can't you know, have shipped to you, you can use interlibrary loan. Um, you're looking at reels of microfilm and scrolling through it and trying to dig, dig up you know, these games one by one. So it's quite a labor-intensive process. It uh, really takes, you know, takes a lot of work, even just to get the box scores in the first place. You know, and that's not even considering the amount of work you have to do after that to, uh, you know, produce a good record out of these box scores, you know, because you have, don't have an official box score necessarily. You might have different box scores in different newspapers, different publications. You have to sort of collate them and put them together and try to figure out when there are, uh, you know, discrepancies, <laughs> when they disagree with each other, when they're missing information, you know, how do you deal with that? So it's quite a process finding stuff, you know, interpreting it, getting it all into a, you know, a, a comprehensive record. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a lot of work. As this small band of historians bring these legends to life, each of them latch on to a special story they will always hold dear. Whether it's Larry Lester with Bullet Rogan. One particular player was uh, Wilbur Bullet Rogan. In researching the 1924 season, because that was the first year of the Colored World Series, uh, I came across the name Rogan, and it was quite interesting as I went from game to game. He would have two, three, four hits every game, and he was pitching. 
at the top of the rotation and batting cleanup. So I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> Just And I calculated his batting average and his pitching. And at the end of the season, he's batting over 400. And he won, I think, 15 or 16 games that season, which is quite a bit when they only play a 60, 70, or 80-game schedule. So I was just blown away by this two-way ball player who batted cleanup, and it was the ace of the pitching staff. He was the original Otani. I mean, he was he was playing every day two-way just like uh, Otani was. Is Otani is doing today. So uh, Otani is not original, uh, and a lot of originality comes out of the Negro League. Or Gary Ashwell on his favorite story hunt. Most old newspapers, I mean, the way we access them now are through microfilmed versions mm. of them. The problem is, is that means that a newspaper is, was microfilmed at some point. It was photographed. And if something went wrong in the course of photographing the paper, uh, that screws up the record for everybody, right? So, for example, I was looking for box scores in the Cincinnati Inquirer for the 1921 season, which is a season when the Cuban Stars, which is a team of Cuban players, they were members of the Negro National League, and they actually used Cincinnati's Redland Field as their home field. So they were based in Cincinnati for that year. Found 25 or 30 box scores for the Cuban Stars and Cincinnati newspapers for that year. One was microfilmed, I believe, out of focus. <laughs> so you could barely read it. Right? So it's just like impossible. You just look at it, it's like it's a blurry thing. The other one was was microfilmed and they cut off like half of it. So you just had half the box score, oh. right? So I was like, oh, what do you do about this? So what I actually wound up doing is I contacted the Cincinnati Public Library and I asked them, I was like, Well, do you do you still have you know, physical copies of the newspaper, like, or do you just have the microfilm? Because in a lot of instances, libraries would microfilm their newspapers and they would like throw away the original papers. They just have the microfilm left. That's all they have, right? Uh, in this case, I was lucky enough to find out that in fact, they had you know, the original newspapers. They were bound into volumes down in the basement and a librarian there actually went down, <laughs> looked up these games and was able to, you know, photocopy the pristine original box scores that were not out of focus and not, not half cut off, you know, so, uh, so I was able to dig that up, you know. Or Adam and the first page he looked at on Baseball Reference. I think that Josh Gibson and Oscar Charleston were the ones that I, I really wanted to see because we hear, you know, that from uh, Buck O'Neill called Oscar Charleston the best baseball player, period, of all time. Josh Gibson, you know, just a five-tool catcher. You don't have those in the game. They're just amazing. But we knew about them. I think what I've really loved seeing is the players that I maybe didn't know as much about. Some of them Hall of Famers, some of them not. But now we have these stats, and it's just unbelievable. So next time you look up the stats of cool Papa Bell or Rube Foster or Buck Leonard or Smokey Joe Williams or Leon Day, just know the time, the effort, and the labor of love it took for you to enjoy those numbers.